Uh, as I was preparing this message and sitting through our previous message, it, it occurred to me that there is a question that could arise in someone's mind uh, as we have been talking about uh, this event from 500 years ago. And that question is, why are we celebrating a 500-year-old fight? Uh, a division uh, in the church. Um, it reminded me a little bit of a married couple that I read about recently who said, you know, we fight like a concert by a classic rock band. Uh, did you ever hear that? They said, we, we start with some new stuff and then we drift back to our favorites eventually, every time we fight. Uh, isn't that unhealthy? Uh, isn't division something that should not be celebrated? Shouldn't we forgive and forget? Uh, isn't it better to focus on what unites us rather than what divides us? After all, isn't the difference between churches really that some people prefer candles and robes while others prefer drums and preachers in blue jeans. Isn't that all that is different? Uh, and just for the record, I very, came very close to wearing blue jeans today, but uh, I hate to blow my image of stuffiness, you know, so uh, we stuck with the Drex pants today. You're welcome, Bertha. Uh, to answer this question, uh, why, what is the big deal about this Reformation? What is this big deal about grace alone? Grace, we all know grace. We celebrate grace. Grace is a wonderful thing. Uh, why, why spend this time remembering something that happened so long ago and was really a division in the church? Uh, to answer the question, I would like to begin by reading a quote from something Martin Luther said in 1525, uh, something he wrote, actually. Uh, he wrote, uh, 1525 was eight years after he nailed the 95 Thesis to the door of the church in Wittenberg, uh, complaining and arguing against the practice of selling indulgences that Pastor Chris talked about uh, just a few short weeks ago. Uh, in their intervening eight years, he had continued uh, to, uh, to wage battle against his own church, uh, in his mind to reform the church, to change it, to draw it back to faithfulness to the word of God. Uh, but in those eight years, uh, he met resistance. Some of that resistance took the form uh, of a letter uh, a diatribe, as it's actually officially called, uh, by a loyal Catholic named Erasmus, who, while believing the church needed reforming, Erasmus said, Luther, you have gone too far. Uh, and so he wrote scholarly, a scholarly uh, letter uh, to uh, Luther and published it widely, saying the areas that Luther was wrong. And in his response, we find the, uh, the beginnings of this answer uh, of what is the big deal about this Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther wrote, uh, I praise and commend you highly for this also. Uh, he's writing this to his critic, of course. Uh, that unlike all the rest, you alone have attacked the real issue, the essence of the matter in dispute, and have not wearied me with irrelevancies about the papacy, about purgatory, indulgences, and such like trifles. For trifles they are rather than basic issues with which almost everyone hitherto has gone hunting for me, but without success. You and you alone have seen the question on which everything hinges and have aimed at the vital spot, for which I sincerely thank you, since I am only too glad to give as much attention to this subject as time and leisure permit. We'll notice in Luther's response that he says, many people have attacked me, but they attacked me about all of the wrong things. Uh, they want to talk about the papacy. Uh, he wanted to talk about the Pope. This in spite of the fact that Luther had been excommunicated uh, four years ago uh, from the church in 1521. 
uh, questions about purgatory, or even indulgences, which had started the matter. Uh, Luther says those aren't the real issue, the vital spot. They are not the question that everything hinged upon. Uh, for Luther, and the, the rest of this book that he wrote, uh, The Bondage of the Will, um, was about what is the nature of grace and what is the problem uh, that it attempts to address. Uh, the vital issue centered on what kind of grace we need. Uh, for the nature of our need determines the form and extent of the grace. And for, for Luther, uh, he said, we've misunderstood grace because we've misunderstood what our need is. Uh, now, it is always true that the nature of our need determines the form and extent of the grace that we need. Uh, imagine, if you will, uh, that uh, I am driving and uh, on the dashboard of my car, this message appears. Uh, what is the grace that I need? Comes in a red can, about $2.50 worth of gas. Uh, be ready for that because uh, much to my wife's frustration, uh, I have found that this is not wholly accurate. And uh, I am waiting a systematic effort to determine how far I can go after that appears. And uh, you can go at least 50 miles, uh, actually, after this message appears. So uh, I may need that form of grace at some point. Uh, please be ready. Uh, however, what if my need is I am destitute? And the only form of transportation that I have to get to work uh, is uh, an AMC Gremlin. Uh, what is the form of the grace that I need? What was that? That's an, that is not a gremlin. That's a pacer. Same body style. All right. See, I'm stepping out of my areas of expertise. So thank you, uh, Gala. Uh, come to the next service, which will be even more accurate than this first service uh, as we go along. Uh, I need grace. Uh, I need grace. Um, uh, if this is my only form of transportation and it no longer runs and I'm destitute, the grace that I need uh, is something bigger than a red gas can. Um, I need help uh, with a car. Uh, the grace that I need uh, is shaped by the need that I have. What is my predicament? The same is true of the grace that we speak of at church, the saving grace that we need. Uh, the problem is we think that everyone is speaking the same language when we see grace, uh, but people mean lots of different things when they talk uh, about the grace that we need. Uh, for some people, uh, they see the grace that we need, or they see the predicament that we have, the problem that we have is that we have a weakness. Uh, we have some moral shortcomings. Uh, to be honest, this was... Uh, the teaching that Martin Luther received in his church. Uh, in Martin Luther's day, the official church teaching that he was raised on or taught uh, that what a person needs to do who is apart from Christ is they do the best that they can. Uh, they attempt uh, to reach out to God doing the best that they can according to their nature and their will. And when that happens, uh, God chooses to graciously reach out to them and enter into a pact with them, a pactum, it is called, uh, which then puts them in a state of grace. Now, instead of being under God's judgment, they're now in a state of grace. And then, as they continue to do good works, those good works uh, accumulate uh, to their account uh, to reward. Um, in Luther's view, uh, Luther was trained, believing and taught by the church that even he is a monk that he participated in, uh, that 
It was his job to do the best that he can, and then God would reach out to him with grace, absolutely, but it was the grace of a helping hand. Uh, The need was weakness, and so we just needed a little help reached out to him. For Luther, this was agonizing. Uh, It was agonizing because he understood the holiness of God. God was perfect, righteous. Uh, God was uh, untouchable in his perfection. And Luther also understood his own weakness. Uh, Luther agonized over sins that he remembered and sins that he'd forgotten. He agonized over if after confessing every sin that he could think of, as he walked away from confessing, he was proud of himself for being so thorough in his confession, whether that was, he was not doing enough uh, in order for God to reach out and extend to him grace. If our problem is weakness, uh, we need a helping hand. And this, Luther said, "I I understand my weakness, and I need more than a helping hand. Uh, But what if our predicament is something different? Uh, What if our predicament is a poor self-concept? What if our problem is we don't think positively enough about ourselves? Uh, That we get discouraged and down on ourselves? Uh, If our predicament is a poor self-concept, we need a pep talk. And there are churches that you can go to that will tell you that you're okay, uh, that God loves you, uh, that he he wants you to have your best life. And he wants you to have it now. Uh, We can receive that message if our predicament is ultimately that we just don't think rightly about ourselves. Uh, To be honest, we can preach messages that say, you know, we can't love God or others properly unless we learn to love ourselves. Uh, And while there may be elements of truth in that, if at the base our problem is uh, we need encouragement, we need a pep talk, we need to be built up and encouraged, and that's why we come to church. Um then the grace that we need is a kind word, somebody to lift us up, someone to make us laugh, and someone to send us on our way. Uh, Is that ultimately what our predicament is? Our our predicament shapes the grace that we need. For some, some they see our predicament as something that is uh, maybe simpler. Uh, It's simple ignorance. Uh, We just don't understand things the way that we should. And if we... Uh, could learn how to live better. We could just be a little bit wiser. Uh, that's our predicament. And the grace that we need is some moral instruction. And so that's why we gather together. Uh, to be honest, uh, this, is a, this is a trap that I can fall in. I, I, I love to explain things, uh, to make things clear, or at least I think that I am. Uh, and we can treat church as a place where I come to receive some, some teaching, some instruction on how to live a little bit better than I did last week. Uh, maybe to be a better dad or a, a better husband, uh, to be able to, to deal with temptation a little bit more effectively. Um, while there, once again, while there may be some elements of truth in this, is this ultimately what our predicament is and the grace that we receive? Is our predicament merely ignorance? Uh, and what we need is moral instruction. You know, in our world, I, I'm, I'm caught, uh, I'm, I notice when tragic things happen, like uh, the shooting in Las Vegas or other ones, how often this idea is that, you know what, we, people just need uh, to think rightly. Uh, because in many quarters I read, people will say, you know what, the problem is, uh, you know, this person must be mentally ill. Uh, there's something wrong with their thinking. There's no right-thinking person would do this. Um, 
In a sense, that's true. It's not right thinking. Uh, But is the ultimate problem just ignorance? Is that they just don't understand or they just don't think right? Or is there a deeper and more significant problem that we face? Is our predicament merely ignorance? Uh, Before we talk about our real issue, I do want to ask one question of you, though. What do you come to church for? What is the reason that you gather? Do you come for a spiritual boost, to feel better, uh, to get some tips on better living? Or do you come because you desperately need God to be at work in your life? Uh, Do you come saying, you know what, I'm doing pretty well on my own. I'm doing the best that I can. And if I could just get a little help along the way, I would feel better about the week to come. Or do I come out of a sense of what I need from God, I need his grace. Everything changes if we say our ultimate predicament, our ultimate problem is the problem of sin and what it leads to, death. Because if our predicament is death, what we really need is resurrection. That is the solution. That is what we come for. Uh, Romans 5, 12 through 14 uh, tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is the type of the one who was to come. Uh, Romans 5 reminds us uh, that sin is our ultimate problem and death is the inevitable result. Uh, it is the just punishment for those who have turned their back on the living God. Uh, but death is not just the future consequence of sin. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look at several verses uh, in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us uh, that death that comes from sin from our, our turning away from God and our rebellion, our orientation to do our own will and not his will, uh, is not just a future punishment. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, And you were dead in the trans- trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom also once we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now this verse starts off by saying, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, What Paul is speaking of is not just the future result of our sin, but a present reality, that we are unresponsive to God, that on our own we do not seek God, we do not desire fellowship with God, Uh, We desire to do our own will. This was Luther's central problem with how he was taught what the grace of God was. He knew that his best was not enough. He knew that he would fall short of God's holiness. And as a result, he could never find assurance in his faith. He knew that he was not always sincere enough in his faith. He was not always sorry enough for his sins. He was not always serious enough about his good works. Uh, And so as a result, uh, Luther was filled with unrest and desperation until he realized 
that death is not, uh, if your problem is death, the solution is not a cooperative effort between you and God. It is a unilateral action by God to reach out to us. Think for a moment of Lazarus. Lazarus, Jesus' friend, the brother of Mary and Martha, uh, died, was buried, is in the tomb for four, four days. Uh, when Jesus comes to the entrance of the tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth, uh, what was Lazarus' cooperative effort with Jesus in bringing him back to life? He was dead. He was in the tomb. There was nothing that he could do uh, as a result. Uh, if your predicament is sin that leads to death, and death is a, uh, under the judgment of God and living unresponsive to God is the problem of a person apart from Christ, then the solution that we need is something more decisive, and it can only come from God. If we continue in, on in Ephesians chapter 2, it says in verse 8, uh, for by the grace you have been saved, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Here is the key point. For Luther, he finally realized that even his response to God, the gift of, is a gift that comes from God. Uh, yes, Pastor Chris talked about faith alone. Uh, and we can say, yep, uh, God does the work in Jesus. He died on the cross for us. Uh, but my job is to respond in faith. And Luther realized Ephesians 2.8 says that even that faith that I receive is something that God gives me. He gives the ability to respond in faith to his call and what he has done for us. The predicament is sin that leads to death. Uh, the grace is the gift of faith that God gives, and that too comes from him. Uh, what then is grace? Grace is an act of God motivated by love and shaped by holiness, which takes account the series of sin yet bring sinners back into communion with him. A couple of things I'd like you to notice about this understanding of grace. Uh, first of all, it is an action, not just a sentiment. Uh, it's not just God, uh, as we sometimes think of grace, that, you know, be, as I even said earlier in the message, hey, be gracious to me when I mess things up. Uh, you know, be, be kind. Uh, some folks think of God as a kindly grandfather who says, oh man, they're good kids. Uh, they didn't mean any harm. You know what? Don't be so harsh on them. Uh, can't God just operate that way? Uh, grace is not a divine sentiment. It is an action. It means that he took action. Uh, what is that act of God? Uh, it is indeed the cross. Uh, that he sent his son. Uh, you know, even as we say they word, they roll off my tongue too easily. Uh, but he sent his son to die decisively. His decision, his action in order to bridge the gap to us. Uh, because we would not reach out to God on our own. You know, this is harder to grasp than we realize. Uh, for many people, maybe outside of the church, maybe even inside the church, uh, the thought is really, can't God just lighten up? Uh, that's kind of the spirit of our age. Why, why make a big deal about things? You know what, I was thinking about that a, a few weeks ago. Uh, does anyone besides me read uh, articles about courtrooms when uh, there's major crimes? Does anyone do that? Just me, all right. That, that's, that's amazing. I, I thought there would be one uh, there. You know, courtroom, I'm talking about real courtrooms with serious crimes. 
violent crimes. Uh, there's a phase that happens right before the sentencing of the criminal. Uh, and it made me think, uh, it made me reevaluate how I think about grace and the predicament that we face. Uh, right before sentencing, there is usually an opportunity for the victims or the families of the victim who have had a crime committed against them uh, to express themselves to the court and to the, to the accused, or the, actually the person who was convicted. Um, they talk about what was lost, uh, the loss of a child, uh, the impact that it has had upon their family. Uh, and when I, when I read those just a, a few weeks ago, I was struck. I'm like, why is this necessary? You know, the law is the law. Uh, if in the eyes of a jury a person has committed a murder, then they're guilty. They, there's a punishment that should come from this. Uh, why is it necessary or appropriate for the victims to have their say? And as I pondered that, I realized there's a temptation that we all can fall into that, you know what, after spending time worrying about the perpetrator of the crime uh, and getting used to the extent uh, of the crime that they have done, there is a need to remind that this crime has a real victim. There is a real obstacle and an actual barrier to this person going free. Uh, their crime has had a consequence. And before we decide on the punishment for that crime, it is important for us to hear what that is. It is important for the person who committed the crime, and it is, certain, it is appropriate for those uh, who decide upon the sentence uh, of, the person, of, the, uh, of the convicted person. The same is true with us and our sin. We get so used to it. It's familiar to us. Uh, and we say, you know what, if God would just be, just, just be a little bit nicer, and not, it was not a real obstacle, an actual barrier to our fellowship with God, uh, we need to remember that while God is not the victim, our sin is a real barrier to our relationship with God. And that barrier was overcome at the cost of God's own Son. Christ, uh, in Christ, God has taken decisive, unilateral action in order to bring us back to himself. Uh, in addition to that, he also gives us, as we said, the gift of faith. Uh, salvation does not come from me doing the best that I can and God filling in the gaps. It is God giving me everything. Now this too can be hard to wrap our minds around. Uh, but another ancient church father, Augustine, says it in a sense we intuitively understand it, but we forget it at times. Uh, he said, you know what, when we pray for the conversion of an unbeliever, we have someone we care about and we're praying for them to come to Christ, uh, the only reason that it makes sense for us to do that is because we believe that God can graciously intervene in their life. He can give them the gift of faith to respond. Uh, the reason we pray for God to be at work is because uh, even our response ultimately comes from him. Our grace is shaped by our need. Uh, our need is desperate and real, an actual barrier to overcome. And God's action and response is also definite and real and profound. Sola gratia. Uh, for Martin Luther, it meant we need to get back to a, a well-rounded understanding of God's grace. Uh, a grace that God has reached out to us and it is not through our effort and our strength. 
Uh, it is a work of God that we receive, and we receive only because God reaches out and allows us to do this with the gift of faith. Uh, well, what are the practical implications? If I, have that, if I understand grace, uh, the grace that I receive in salvation, the grace that I live in, uh, I'd like to focus on three things. First of all, understanding grace undermines conflict. Understanding grace undermines conflict. You know, I began this message talking about conflict. Uh, the Reformation was a conflict in the church. Uh, as individuals and people, we have conflict uh, in our lives. I, I'd like you to think of the last conflict that you have been involved in. Hopefully it was long ago, uh, barely in the recesses of your mind. Uh, but as you think about that conflict, in the conflict, how much of, the, uh, of a conflict that starts, and especially one that continues and lingers, comes because of our commitment uh, to be right, to win, uh, to, to be victorious in it, because it is important to us that we have our way. Uh, much conflict comes. That's why James chapter 4 says, uh, why are there fights and quarrels among you? It's because you have desires that, that are inside of you, but you don't get what you want, and as a result, you fight and even kill in order to get what you want. Uh, that's what begins and continues and extends conflict. But if we understand grace, if we understand what we have received, first of all, what we have received from God, uh, it undermines conflict. Uh, I use that word purposely uh, because the reality is uh, Luther's understanding of grace did not prevent the conflict with the Catholic Church. Um, truth was also important and significant. And so Luther made his stand, and in some ways he's not the best example of avoiding conflict. Uh, Luther was a very bombastic, uh, very uh, verbal person who uh, was not afraid to throw uh, verbal hand grenades, metaphorically speaking, uh, at others. But if, when we truly understand grace, uh, when our focus is on what we have received, the blessings that we've received from God, sometimes the blessings that we've received from others, it undermines conflict because when I come from a position of, uh, I am blessed and have received so much, our conflicts, our, our desire to have our own way, it, it is undermined and weakened. And we say, you know what? I come from a position of having received. Is it so vital uh, that I have my way, that I win, that I be right? Uh, sometimes that may be necessary. Not all conflict is bad. But when we understand grace, we come from a different place. Uh, it settles and soothes our heart uh, and ultimately our words and actions towards those that we are in conflict with. Understanding grace, what we have received, it undermines the conflicts that are part of our lives. Uh, secondly, if we understand grace as it comes from God, uh, we realize that grace is how we begin with God, and it's also how we continue with him. You know, grace is not something that God just did when we put our faith uh, in him. It is not uh, just something that moves us from having, uh, being under judgment to saying, you know what, my destiny is heaven. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.10, uh, Paul writes, Sorry. Uh, 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Now, now this is a very, uh, very interesting passage. It's, in some ways, it's difficult to understand. When we have this uh, putting together of a, a grace that I've received, and that also Paul says that I'm working harder uh, than anyone else. Uh, isn't works the, the opposite of, of grace? Uh, but if you slow down to read, you realize what Paul is saying is, um, it is the grace of God that has made me who I am. It is the grace of God that I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. It continues to work uh, in me. Uh, Paul is defending his apostleship against those who are challenging uh, him. And he says, you know what, I'm working as hard as anyone, uh, but even that undermines my, I'm, my own pride is worked against because I know that it is not just me working, it is the grace of God that is with me. It is God's grace, what he has done in my life, that is working itself out in me. Uh, yes, I am ser- attempting to serve God with vigor and faithfulness. Uh, I am doing what God has called me to do to the best of my ability, Paul is saying, uh, but I do that because of the grace of God that is in me and working out of me. Uh, what begins with grace continues with grace. I need to remember uh, that as a person who has received grace, I'm a person who uh, lives by grace. Uh, the grace that I receive extends uh, to others. Uh, the grace that I receive is something that permeates uh, my life. Uh, rather than my own self, my own will, my own desires, the grace of God is what marks me. I continue with grace. I continue to need God's grace on a daily basis. Uh, I never come from a position to say, you know what, God saved me and now I'm going on and I'm back to doing the best that I can uh, on my own and the best that I can is pretty doggone good. No, I always need God's grace on a daily basis. And when I come from that perspective, once again, it fights against the pride that wells up within me uh, and it allows me to extend grace uh, to others, uh, and it makes me acknowledge my own need. Grace is how I begin with God and is how I continue with him. Third implication uh, of grace. Uh, and in this one, I, I will rest on what, uh, what brought Martin Luther to his understanding of grace. And that is, my assurance rests in the hands of God. Uh, for Luther, uh, he was uh, torn apart on the inside saying, you know what, God, I know that I can never be good enough. I know that I can't be pure enough and holy enough and consistent enough. I know that I can't. And that drove him to guilt and ultimately to despair uh, for much of his life until he realized that his faith was a gift from God. The penalty for his sin was satisfied by a decisive work of God. It was all God, it was not him. And so the security that he could have in his faith was rested not in his own weak will, but ultimately it rests in the hand of God. You know, a few weeks ago I was talking to my, uh, to my Building You class, and we were talking about when we're in conflict with other people. Um, and when people let us down is really what we were talking about. And uh, often, how many of you when, you are, when somebody lets you down, you, you feel that pull inside of you that says, you know what, I'm just not going to rely on other people anymore. I'm just going to handle it myself. 
You know what? I can't trust anyone else. Um, I'm just going to handle it myself. Does anybody feel like that? I won't make you raise your hand because Heather's nodding me. That's all the affirm affirmation that I need. You know, that, that desire, I can't trust anybody else. I'm, I, I'm just going to do it myself. You know, you know what? The last time I said that to myself, right before that class, I realized something. I trust me. Think about yourself for a second. You know what? I'm not going to trust anybody else. I'm just going to trust me. Do you trust you? Do you really know yourself well enough? Can you really be honest about yourself? You know what? As long as my assurance and security rests on, you know what? I'm handling it on my own. I'm doing the best that I can, and that's pretty good. At least it's better than Jared. You know what? It's you know, that good at least. Uh, you know what? That's a shaky foundation. Uh, but when my understanding of my assurance of my salvation, my place in God's family, my uh, eternal uh, destiny, uh, when all of that rests on the work of God and what he has done with us, then we stand in a firm and secure place. Our assurance rests in the hands of God. And when we realize that, we respond in worship, when we understand the extent of our predicament and the extent of what God has done, it causes us to respond with gratitude in our prayer and in corporate worship. It causes us to respond uh, to the grace of God um, 